Amen. You may be seated. Glory and honor be forever thine. Ray, are you up for this too? Are you sure? Might as well. Trifecta, man. Okay, just making sure. If we are a team though, right? But you're not willing to sub in? Not right now. Okay, just checking. All right. Hey, it is a joy to be part of the preaching team. And as you know, we are, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we're going through the book of Second Peter, the little epistle written by Peter. And so we are continuing on in that study. And, and I think it's an important portion that we come to this morning. Not that there's not a portion that's not important, but it is significant in terms of understanding not only this letter, but also for us understanding what it is that I hold in my hands here this morning. I'm not going to ask you, I'm going to ask you not to answer this out loud, but I want you to answer this in your heart and in your head. What is this? What is this? This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Here's the big question. Does your affirmation of that statement match the life that you live? If someone watched your life, would they say, yes, they believe, based on their life, that 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 is the infallible, inerrant Word of God? Would they go further and say, they, they believe that that's sufficient for life and for godliness? What does your life say about what this is. Notice then I didn't say what you believe it is. What does your life say about what this really is? And in the end, it is what it is, but do we affirm what it is? And in this passage today, we get to the heart, the fundamentals of what this Bible really is and how then it should impact our lives. See, from the early days of the church, false teachers who were more grounded in the culture and in the teachings of the culture, the philosophy and ideas of the culture, brought those things into the church. Not much different than today, right? Many churches, and we could be just as guilty, bringing into the church the ideas that are more grounded in the philosophies of the world rather than grounded in the Word of God. But it was so important in these early days that the apostles and the elders and the leaders in those churches would confront those things head on. Because in these formative years, it needed to be clear what they stood on, what they believed, right? It's, it's important today, in some ways no less important, but man, when you're a fledgling church facing unbelievable persecution as they were, it was so important that, it, that they address it. You see, in the Jewish and Greek world, these man-made myths these philo- were used to express the different philosophies of these of that day. They were utilized to explain the existence of the world, the supernatural, and the afterlife. And so, in Second Peter, we find that there are false teachers. He's going to address those more directly in the next couple chapters, in chapters 2 and 3. But they were seeking to weaken the confidence of the church in the second coming of Christ. 
and we find that they were claiming that, that reports or prophecies were just fables. They were just myths. The product of human ideas and purposes. And these teachers were very likely influenced by various philosophers, but especially by one Greek philosopher, Epicurus. Now, some of you are like, oh my goodness, we've just gone to class. Okay, this is important to understand. Bringing an outside philosophy into the church and, and letting it dictate, determine our interpretation, our understanding of Scripture. It's a dangerous thing. should go the other way, right? We look out at the world through the lens of Scripture. Well, the teachings of Epicurus attracted legions of adherents throughout the the ancient Mediterranean world, and and later they affected a whole lot of people in Europe. They taught a form of, of sort of controlled hedonism, where pleasure is the highest good, especially the pleasure in the mind, and that being especially the idea that I'm free of worry, free of anxiety. Sounds good, right? And, and the, I did just enjoying life, right? I'm not stressed about death and, and those kind of things. I'm not worried about a God. I'm just living life, man, enjoying life. It's like, don't worry, man, be happy, right? And, and, and you think about this, and then you think about what we're reading this morning. As he, we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ and the, the, the confidence that we can have in the, the scriptural prophecies. And you can see where they were bringing that into the church saying, hey, you know, that second coming thing where it's, it's just a, it's just a story. It's just a story because in the end, Epicurus would teach it's all nothingness. We all just go off and we die and it's all over. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what we see Paul referencing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. When he wrote, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He was affirming that if there is indeed no second coming, if there is no, no resurrection, then we should just enjoy this, right? Enjoy this to the full. And what do we see in the world around us? We see many just saying, let's eat, drink, and be merry. And not worry about eternity. But in our passage today, Peter meets these false teachers head on. And he begins so in verse 16. And he says directly to them, For we, he's not talking about him and the mouse in his pocket, he's talking about him and the other apostles, okay? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't make anything up. We merely reported as eyewitnesses. In fact, we're going to find that he's going to build on this throughout the rest of the book. But you see, man's myths and man's methods are at best ineffective for spiritual growth. And at worst, they are deadly and destructive. God's word is divinely inspired, historically accurate, and redemptively powerful. Man's myths have no power. They can manipulate, they can influence, and buddy, you can go to any bookstore or Goodwill around and find a whole lot of books written by, by men and women that are used, that where they use stories to help convey an idea to help influence you to A, buy their book, and to begin to run your business or your life according to sort of their story that they've developed. 
Some of them are, are helpful. They can be good things, but they don't have any redemptive power. Unfortunately, we've brought that kind of stuff into the church, too. Right? We've tried to get really cute with our stories, and, and you're beginning to wonder, are we getting Scripture, or are we getting just a whole lot of your ideas, a whole lot of your philosophy? Well, Peter was impeccably clear. I didn't make it up. We didn't make it up. This is from God. Right? We're not trying to manipulate you. The apostles, including Peter, spoke openly about what he's about to address, this idea of the transfiguration, which was a preview of, of Christ's return. They spoke the truth of what they had seen and heard. Paul affirmed this idea in 2 Corinthians 4.2, and he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we stand before you with a clear conscience and we only have the message that we are witnesses to. We commend ourselves to you. You see, to combat deception, God's people desperately need the clear voice of truth. They need the clear voice of truth. We need the clear voice of truth. The apostles were confident that they spoke the truth, not myths, because of what they had personally witnessed. In verse 16, Peter goes on to say, But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He revealed who He, who is His? Jesus Christ. For when He, Jesus, received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father, and the voice, voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Okay. Now, if you know some of the, the basic stories of the, of the New Testament, then you might know what this is referring to. If not, then let me just quickly tell you. This was what we would refer in Christian circles to the transfiguration. Alright. Apostles go up on the, on a, on a mount there near Jerusalem and Je- Jesus appears there in a glorified state. In other words, surrounded in majesty and, and light and wonder. I can't even begin to describe it because I wasn't there. In case you were... I mean, I know to some of you, I may look older, but I'm not that old. Okay? And, and so, the, he appeared, but not only he, but Moses and Elijah. What's significant about those two men? Well, one was carried away into heaven um, and one died. So Jesus brought one from heaven, raised one from the grave, and brought him along with him. What's even more significant about these two men? Well, one, Moses, represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. They represented the Old Testament scriptures is what they represented. Okay? Which we're going to happen to talk about in just in a few moments. So... What was going on here? Well, let's just first of all handle it sort of as we move through. First of all, in the Greek, there's a, the word used for eyewitnesses in verse 16 is used one time. It's used right here in the New Testament. What were they eyewitnesses of? They were eyewitnesses, as we've made clear, of Jesus Christ. So their preaching and their teaching was rooted in the person, work, and words of Jesus Christ. As John wrote in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As one of these eyewitnesses, Peter speaks to the who, what, where, when, how, right? That's what you want to hear from an eyewitness. Hey, just the facts, man. Okay. And in a very short order, Peter presents this magnificent experience, which, by the way, do you, if you don't, aren't aware of it or weren't familiar with it, or need a reminder, which Peter's really good at, is this didn't go so well for Peter. He was so excited about this that he said, whoa, this is amazing. Let's build like some, some little tabernacles up here on the mountain and have one for you, Jesus, and one, one for Elijah and, and, one, and one for Moses, and we'll just stay here, right? That wasn't the point, Peter. The, Peter, the, the point is for you to go and share this. And so this is kind of an exciting moment for Peter. He's like, hey, I get to tell people about what I saw on the mountain. That was a big deal, right? He was overly excited. He was rebuked, though, for, for, his ad, for, for just wanting to stick around. So Peter does the who, what, where, when, how. The who and what. They caught a glimpse, and this is important. They caught a glimpse of the power and majesty of Jesus Christ coming into his eternal kingdom. Why was this such a big deal? This was a forward look. This was a preview of what will come. You see, they were, they were going to see Jesus crucified. They would see the risen Lord while he was here on earth. But this was a little bit of insight like, hey, those... Those two guys, Elijah and Moses, they're, they're not down here. We understand getting to see Jesus here. But those two guys, they're, they're with God. And, and He's with them. And God the Father is affirming Him. And He says that we saw Him in His honor and glory. In His glory and His honor. We sang about that in, in one of the songs this morning. You see... What they saw was and heard was the recognition of, of, of one who had attained a position through his labors and achievements. That's the honor part. He was honored by the Father who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. They saw him in his glory. It's a quality that belongs alone to God and is shared in Christ. It is external and it's visible. They saw it and they heard it. And they got a glimpse into what was to come. Epicurious. There is something coming. There is a God who is eternal. There is one who who reigns. And one who is going to come back in this honor and in this glory. And He's going to come back next time, not just with Elijah and Moses. He's going to come back with the, the saints, right? And they caught a glimpse of, the, a glimpse of this. The transfiguration of Jesus provides, provided Peter with this confidence that Jesus Christ will give every believer, we saw back in early in chapter 1, a rich welcome into his eternal kingdom. Instead of listing numerous details about this memorable event, Peter emphasizes the main points as Jesus' honor and glory given to him and confirmed by God the Father. They got a preview. A preview. You, you know previews. Um, you, if you go to the movies at all, you, when you see a preview, a trailer that comes out, 
it tells you something. It's like, oh, they've either got this movie done or they're close to getting it done and it's going to be released. And they're going to put it out in the theaters and I'll be able to go and watch it. Think of this little clip as a trailer. It's something that is good as done, but it's yet to come. Right? Coming soon to an earth near you. Right? And that, that's what the transfiguration did, was it was like, hey, this is coming. And this is affirmation of it. We heard it and we saw it. Okay? And that's important. We heard God Himself, God the Father, say it. Right? We, as the apostles, not just me, Peter, and you can go elsewhere in scriptures and, and hear these other apostles talk about the same coming, right? Not only the transfiguration, but the same coming. And you'll hear them talk about the honor and the glory that is due this one. We even see it back in the Psalms. This honor and, the glo- and glory. Psalm 8, 5. You have made him, Christ, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Hebrews 2, 9 echoes this same, um, this same passage. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Here's the key. Peter addresses the transfiguration of Jesus because it is an instance in which he and other apostles were given this view behind the veil. A a picture of what was to come. And this same picture gave them a confidence that the one who goes beyond is one day coming back with this honor and this glory and this power. Hebrews six nineteen through 20 encourages us to think in this way. It says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus has gone beyond the veil. He is in the holiest of holies and one day He will come for us and take Him with Him that we may be where He is. Right? The apostles were simply human witnesses to a preview of the divine kingdom. A divine gift of truth and glory on display. A gift of confident hope in the return of Jesus Christ. These men who saw Jesus ascend into heaven, we read in Acts 1-7, believed Him when He said, As I go, I'll return. Right? They believed it because they had seen a glimpse of it. But he goes on. And this is a little bit of an unusual statement that comes next in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter, I'm sorry, you got me all over the place. Between Peter and Paul and 1 and 2 Peter, you just never know we're going to land, right? 2 Peter 1.19, Peter says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Now there's some interesting language in there. But first of all, what is this thing that he says? And we have the prophetic word more fully 
confirmed. In the previous section, in verses 16 through 18, he's talking about what they saw and what they heard. Right? They heard the voice of God. They saw Jesus transfigured on that mount in His glory and honor. And yet He says, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. That's quite a statement. So, what is He saying? Well, what happens here, and some of your versions read differently, right? There's a number of different ways that this is, this is recorded. But what they're trying to capture here when they say more fully confirmed, they're trying to capture this, the comparative language that is in the Greek here. In other words, they're comparing the prophecy, the prophetic word, to what was just written about. And so it might be easier to say that it's, it's, you know, more, it's, it's something better, it's something greater. That's not what he's saying. So what is he trying to get to here? If he's using it, he's comparing the two, and he says it's in, in a good a good version is a more reliable, a more fully confirmed versus I think the more reliable word, right? It's not more reliable, except in this way. It has been witnessed to. Think of it this way: it has been witnessed to more times. Does that make sense? If I come into court and I have two witnesses that say the same thing, that's a reliable word. But if I have ten witnesses or fifteen witnesses and they're saying the same thing and they've been saying the same thing for centuries, that's a more reliable... I happen to look over here and see an attorney, so I don't know. Maybe I'm way off base. But but bottom line is, is when you've got all the prophecy of the Old Testament lining up and pointing down through the ages... With prophecy saying there is one coming who will come and he will one day return. That is a more confirmed, more reliable prophecy. That makes sense? It's not better than. It's just simply because, I mean, how do you get much better than a bunch of apostles hearing directly from God? That's pretty daggum reliable. But when he's writing to these brothers and sisters in Christ... What would they already have and what would they already be hanging on to? The Word of God. The prophecies of old. And so he's saying, if, if you don't believe me and these other apostles, <laughs> look at what's in your hand, right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe, what, friend, what will it take? Some of you question whether this is the inherent infallible word of God. And because you question it, you basically deny it. And because of that, friend, you are still far from Christ. Though you may be so near, maybe you've grown up in this church, and you've heard the word of God taught week after week after week, and you're just as lost as you ever were. You are so near, but you are so far. Friend, I will not convince you this morning. I can't. But I pray that through your study of Scripture and through the work of the Spirit of God, that you will become convinced of what this is. And we're going to talk more about what it is, but but this, the Word of God, written down to reveal Himself through the written 
word to you. That you might know Him. That you might be drawn to Him. That you might live with Him forever in glory. Friend, if you don't know, we'd love to sit down and talk with you more after the service or later. But that is an essential point that we cannot escape this morning. What do you believe about this book? What do you believe about what is written on these pages? He says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And then he says this, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. I'm going to go to the last phrases there and then I'll come back. Because those last phrases are a little bit of a poke back to the transfiguration. You see, when he talks about until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, that dawns and morning star, if you are a scholar of Scripture, you may already be picking up what he's putting down. Because back in Luke, we talk about the morning star, right? And who is the morning star? Jesus Christ is that morning star. And what about it dawning? What's he talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ returning in this place. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means in about in your hearts. Um, but but that's sort of a cool thing we'll get to in just a moment. But as he looks at this, he's saying, man, you got this coming. But right now you, you do well to pay attention to this prophetic word more fully confirmed as to a light shining in a dark place. You see, Peter knew that to dispel confusion, God's Word provides divine direction and clarity. Peter's combating the confusion created by false teachers by establishing trustworthiness in the Old Testament prophecies, pointing to the Scriptures for clarity. He says they do well to pay attention. What does that really mean? To pay attention to the prophetic word of the Holy Scriptures. Pay attention means to focus our concern, our care, and commitment on something. This means really cultivating something more than just a casual familiarity. Or even just really memorizing. But it really gets down to the idea that we ponder it. We don't just peruse it. We apply it to our lives rather than simply affirm it in our minds. Remember we talked earlier about the affirmation? Yes, that is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Yeah, I believe that. It's true, page to page. It's, it's more than that. It's not just about affirmation. It's about application. So how do we pay attention to it? He says pay attention to it like it's a light shining in a dark place. Well, dark in this place means murky. And maybe you've been in the woods at night, far away from civilization. It's dark. It's really dark. We were just down in Kentucky a week ago and my, uh, my daughter Elena mentioned how dark it was out there on the countryside. Well, that's out there with, you know, every few hundred feet there's still homes. You go up into somewhere like Canada, in the woods of Canada, and there's not lights anywhere. The only light is either the, the flashlights you bring or the campfire that's burning. And, and one of everybody's favorite things, absolute 
favorite things was going to bathroom at night in the woods. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that wasn't a pleasant thing. Because see, you leave the comfort of the light and you walk down this little trail back into the woods and you go off of the trail, preferably, and find a, 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 you know, a spot there and you go to the bathroom. Okay? Meanwhile, you don't leave your headlamp on. Because if you do, there are black flies and mosquitoes swarming all around your head and you're swatting at those. That's not pleasant. So you turn that light off. It's suddenly very dark. And you hear things rustling in the woods. And you can't see anything, but you hear things, right? I'm not sure if they were always there, but you heard them in your head somehow. And then you quickly you get put back together and you try to find the trail and, and you see the campfire through the woods. Hopefully not too close, because you hopefully have gone far enough. But you, you head towards that light and you stay fixed on it, but not just on it, but on what it reveals, right? What the light's shining on. And if you're smart, you remember, oh, better get my headlamp back on and you turn it back on and now it lights your path. It's not only this idea of a a light that you're going to, but what the light reveals around you. And he says you should pay attention to the prophecies of Scripture as though it's a light to go to. But not only a light to go to, a light that shines the way. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light dispels darkness. And brings everything into view. And so we fix our eyes on the light to stay coarse. But we also use the light's glow to look at the objects that become visible to avoid stumbling. And that's what the Word of God does. The more light that is shed upon the murky darkness of this world, the better we see it for what it is. And the coming kingdom of God for the glory revealed through His transfiguration and the prophecies of old. Yes, it's good. It's good that you're reading through the Word of God. Maybe you've purposed in your heart that you're going to read through the Scriptures this year. Maybe you're even one of those that, that took Chris up on his challenge last week to memorize, begin memorizing this passage from, from Second Peter. Those are good, good things. But do you take time to consider the glow it casts on your life? And on your life's course, do you pay attention to it? William Bridges, Puritan pastor, wrote this, Surely there, for this light of Scripture is the best light, the most excellent light, more excellent than of revelations in visions, more excellent than that of dreams and immediate voices, more excellent than that of impressions, more excellent than that of the law and light within, more excellent than that of Christian experience or that of divine providence or that of human reason. It is the most excellent light. And as it's recorded in Second Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine. David sang this, For you are my lamp, O Lord, my, and my God lightens my darkness. You know, sometimes it's uncomfortable when the light reveals the darkness within. 
reveals the darkness around us. But oh, how we desperately need it to reveal that. And how desperately we need to respond to that revelation. As we see it, and we see Christ for who He is, and we see ourselves for who we are, we have the joy and the honor to to make all diligence to add to our faith virtue, and to our virtue knowledge, to, to grow up. And as we see we're lacking, we can add to more knowledge of Christ and be transformed more and more into His image so that at one day we can be assured of a rich entrance into the kingdom of heaven that we read about early again here in First Peter. Because the Scriptures are set, the settled, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God, they cut through the darkness of doubt and uncertainty. The light of man. In other words, when I use the word light of man, I use it hypothetically speaking. Because the light of man is nothing more than their ideas born from their own minds or from some shared concept or idea. It does, it, 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 it's limited. It's open to question or interpretation. The Word of God cuts through the darkness and gets to the heart and soul of man. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. While man's myths and their stories and their explanations of life and death may sound reasonable and attractive. They may be easily packaged up in a nice book or a video. They're dangerous paths with a deadly end. Proverbs, Proverbs 4 speaks about that kind of wisdom. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Oh, a little foreshadowing of what we got to at the end of our of verse 19 here, right? This morning star dawns in, the, in, in your hearts, right? The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They don't see the light. They don't recognize the light. They don't pay attention to the light. And they stumble over they know not what. Friend, you have the light of the Word of God. There's no need to stumble along without it. It's easy, though, to go astray and stumble in the murky confusion of this world if we don't pay attention to the penetrating and revealing light of God's Word. But in this second half of verse 19, he makes this reference that we've talked about to day dawning and the morning star. We've talked about how that looks at this coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. But what is this in your hearts? Well, as I looked at that, it just, it just looks odd. Like, I don't want the second coming of Christ in my heart, and it's not going to be. We're told elsewhere that it's going to be a visible, physical return. Okay? It's not going to be just His kingdom without Him. It's going to be Him, His return. So what is this? As best as I can understand, and I'm sure that we can have greater discussion on this, but this in your heart speaks to the growing hope of the believer and their longing for the return of Christ, which every believer 
should be longing for the return of Christ, which should drive us, as he said earlier, to make every effort to supplement our faith as we look forward to our entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. In other words, the light given by God's word in our hearts will come to full blazing glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. It will be like, yes, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what the, the, the prophecies have told me. This is what I have believed. And there He is. And it will be, it'll be blazing in our hearts and it will be witnessed there before us. And our hearts will affirm the very thing that we've known. How have we known it? Through His Word. And so, Peter isn't done yet. Because, yes, we have, he's affirmed his eyewitness account. He's affirmed the prophecies of old. But he's like, hey, in case you still have a little bit of a question about those prophecies and why you should pay attention to them, let me take you there. And he says, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, and that's important, prophecy of Scripture, because he's going to say no prophecy later, is, and we could misunderstand that and go, well, no prophecy? No, there are truly prophecies that are of men, right? But he's talking about that no prophecy of Scripture come from, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, and you could read there, no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, just a minute. Did you catch that at the beginning of that verse? Knowing this first of all. If someone says that to you, hey, knowing this first of all, your boss walks into your office on a Monday morning and says, hey, knowing this first of all, you'd be like, oh. Matt Mitchell, our chief that had the honor of going to their, their fire banquet last night, the Noblesville fire chief here, if Matt walks in to a Monday morning meeting and he says, knowing this first of all, some people probably ought to set up and take note. Right? It, kids, if your mom, mom or dad walks in the room and says, hey, understand this first of all, you might want to pay attention. Because what they're about to say is of utmost importance. It's priority. Okay, what's going to come after that may relate to it, maybe. Um, but bottom line, it's it's of utmost importance. So this is important. What's important? Confidence in God's word. You see, to dismiss uncertainty, confidence in God's word is of first priority. You got to get that right. That's why it's so important as we go back to somewhere like Genesis that you establish in Genesis 1 through 3 these foundational doctrines, including how you view Scripture. How do you view Scripture? There's no greater reason to have confidence in God's Word, though, than its very source. And that's where he goes. He says, I want you to understand these were not prophecies that were just from prophets. We were not just witnesses of our own accord. You see, its source, its origin is God himself. 
What else are you going to trust in? What else are you going to be confident in? I don't trust any of you that way. I trust you with a whole lot. But I don't trust you that way. Not everything you're going to say is going to be true. Not every promise you make can you keep. You make checks with your mouth that you can't keep, right? And the bottom line is, God doesn't. What God says is yes and amen. And this scripture came directly from God, as he describes here, that it wasn't by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 much the same thing. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so while we live in a day of murky spiritual darkness, compounded by false teachers and supposed prophets, much seems uncertain. When you rely solely upon the Word of God, you're relying upon that which is from the author and the sustainer of the universe. From the infinitely small to the infinitely grand. And I tell you, just a plug for science. Don't ever take science by what's just in the textbooks. There's so much more. There's so much more that should open your eyes to the wonder and the glory and the majesty and the eternality of God as you look to the, to the great beyond down to the study of quarks. And I'm not even, I'm, I'm so out of it. I don't even know what goes smaller anymore. But they're smaller. That God, that God is the one who gave us this word. People ran out when Steve Jobs' autobiography or, biography, or autobiography, I don't know what it was, was written. People ran out in droves to buy that book. Because Steve Jobs had, has, has done some pretty amazing things. And he had a lot of knowledge. And they wanted to know, how, why, why did he do what he did? How did he do it? How did he know it? Folks. This is, this is a word from the eternal God. And where might it sit? How do you respond to it? And sadly, how are our pulpits in our day treating it? We've done a lot of rebranding of it, rewriting of it, and retelling of it. And I'm not talking about translations. I'm talking about what we do with it and how we twist it and we turn it and we dilute it and we change it to say what we want it to say. When we put our emphasis on our impressions, our personal visions, our agenda, and we create our stories to create loyal followers, but it's, folks, it's our responsibility and it's our calling by the grace of God as ambassadors for Christ to proclaim the Word of God. And sometimes it's not attractive in the greater sense to our culture, but it's true and, we, and it's powerful and it's quick and active and living and we mistake our methodology for its power. We can, we can create big crowds, but it's not about big crowds. Can this create big crowds? Oh, 3,000 came to Christ in a day in Acts. But it's, but it's the true, living, unadulterated Word of God that we appeal to and we depend upon. In the midst of murkiness, we need clarity and not confusion. In the midst of the muddy waters of human myths and deception, 
we have a pure source, right? We have a pure source, according to Peter. The prophecies of Scripture are not manufactured by men, but find their source in God Himself. Never changing, all powerfully, all powerful, sovereignly ruling God of the universe, who not only can say it, but He can make it happen, right? Psalm 111, 7 and 8 says this about the word, the work and word of God. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. That was the psalmist affirmation of the trustworthiness and the dependability of scriptures. But what does Peter mean when he writes, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation? That's sort of another one of those strange phrases in there. Like, well, yeah, no, I can't just go to Scripture and read it and go, well, here's my interpretation of that. No, the, the we, we go back to authorial intent. There's a big word for you. In other words, what did the author mean when he wrote it? That's what we want to understand, and, but he's not, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about our understanding of it. He's actually, he's actually talking about something more fundamental than that. The context gives us, gives us the answer. You see, in that next phrase, he ta- tells us how God moved, right? That, that the, the Holy Spirit moved in men. Let me go back to the right verse here. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the context for the previous verse. In other words, he's really asking the question, where did it come from? It wasn't open to their own interpretation of what God said. They were moved along by the Spirit of God to write what they wrote. It wasn't just stories written down by men over generations. And those stories got told to other men and... and and passed on, and we really don't know what they wrote. No. These were men of God moved. And here's what the picture he's given. Like they, the, the, what is getting recorded is the, is the ship, or the sail, the sailboat, and the, the prophet is the sail, and the Spirit of the God, a Spirit of God comes in and moves them where he wants them to go. Now, you still get the person, right? They're still there. They're still present. And that's why you get different styles and different personalities that show through in what's written. But it's God who's speaking through them. Not much different than when you... Well, no. Time out. A lot different, but in, in, it's similar in, in this way to preaching. I am not being moved by every word inspired by God. I will be impeccably clear. I do not speak as the infallible and errant word of God, except for when I'm reading it. Okay? And therefore, you being good students of the word, like the Bereans in in Acts, should go and study the scriptures to say, is what he said true? Is that accurate? Right? That's good. You'd be noble in the doing of that. Right? But it's similar in this way. We have four of us on the preaching team. Okay, And when each one comes up here, you see each one striving to be faithful to the Word of God, to preach what is there, but you see it done very differently, right? We've got a guy from California, we've got a guy from Wisconsin, 
and you probably might reverse those two. I mean, the one that's from Wisconsin, you might think is from California. That's another story. I've been confused about that one, right? You got a guy from Kansas, and you got a guy, Rob, where are you from? Connecticut. Connecticut. My goodness. We got different ages, right? Different experiences, different backgrounds. And so you will hear the Word of God delivered through these different personalities, okay? But when we're talking about the prophecy, when we're talking about the Scriptures, these were directed specifically to record the words they recorded in their time that they might be witnesses to these things. They were moved along. If those prophecies were to arise from men who have no authority or power to bring their prophecies to pass, then there's no certainty of fulfillment. They'd be just another Nostradamus, right? There'd be no precious promises or divine power upon which to build one's life that Peter references in 2 Peter 1.3. But because they are find their source in God, then we would do well to pay attention to it. So what do we do with this? What do we do with these truths? Because this wouldn't be what some would call a therapeutic sermon. In other words, tell you how to be three steps to be a greater dad, three steps to be a greater student, three steps to be a greater mom. That's not this kind of sermon. It's a fundamental sermon down to the basics of what do we do with this truth that this is the Word of God. And what do we do with the truth that He's coming again? If this is true, then the other is true. A couple of thoughts as I thought how I should respond. First of all, I should reserve. I should reserve the expression, a word from God, for something that is truly the word of God. God's word is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. I've said that a couple times today. You aren't. Your dreams aren't. Your visions aren't. Your impressions aren't. The canon of Scripture is closed. We may differ on our understandings of things like, what are, what, how does God use prophecies and in this day? How does it, what about dreams? Can God use a dream? We can talk about that. But let me tell you impeccably, don't you ever go to another believer and say, you've got a word from God, as though they need to then live their life based on what you just told them. You are not God. You are not one of the prophets who recorded their, were recorded in Scripture. And you need to be so clear and so careful. So clear and so careful. Again, did I say that I didn't go into how God uses prophecies and dreams and visions in our current day. But I think we're impeccably clear that the canon's closed. Revelation goes so far as to say, man, if you add to this book, may the curses of this book be added unto you. It's a serious thing. So we reserve the expression, a word from God, for something that is the word of God. And folks, let's be honest. How much of this do we really live by? Do we need more? We got plenty right here. Plenty, I do. But then, not only reserve, but respond. And this is back to where we started. 
Here we go round again. This is the Word of God. Does your life show that you believe it's the Word of God? We should respond. We should respond to the Word of God. When you submit, when I submit to the Word of God, I am affirming its truth of God by the authority of God and its origin in God and its power from God. It's far too easy and far too common to deny in practice what we affirm in theory. Here's what I mean by that. Back again where we started. I believe it's the Word of God. I will stand up and say, yes, this is the Bible. It's the Word of God. But then I go and live in a way that says, but I don't believe that. I live like I'm God. I live as if there is no God. And he has not spoken. Friend, this morning, first of all, do you believe that this is the word of God? If you do, do you hunger for it? Do you seek after it? Do you respond to it for what it is? Because let me tell you, it is a light in darkness. It is life and sight. It is life to the dead and sight to the blind. It's transforming. It's able to equip you for every good work. It provides for you everything you need for life and for godliness through His His precious promises. And friends, one day, the one who is revealed here is coming back. And our prayer is that we will be, as Paul said, longing for His appearing. Because we read about Him here, and we go, I want want that. I want that. I want Him. And one day, that inner passion, that inner hope becomes the ultimate reality as we stand before Him and see Him face to face. And we forever will be with the Lord. Friend, that's what our hope is and our prayer is for each and every one here. Let's resolve to respond in worship and in adoration and submission to the one revealed through the glorious book of the Word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, the reality is this, that we will walk out from here and the stuff of this world will distract us. But Lord, bring us back. May your Holy Spirit Turn our eyes to your glorious word. Remind us in our hearts what you have taught us through your wonderful word. And may we respond to that in joy, in repentance, and submission, and with lives and minds that are transformed. And may you get the glory for it, and may we have the joy from it. And God, help us as a body of Christ to be so very careful with our words, that we not give ourselves position and place over one another, but that we all together would submit ourselves to one another under the Word of God. And may you get the glory for that. And may we have the joy, joy of the unity that is shared in that. 
And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.